Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Nine, that's the number of Democratic candidates on the ballot running to be the next U.S. representative for Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District. The seat currently held by Congressman Joe Kennedy III opened up back in November when Kennedy announced his run for U.S. Senate against Senator Ed Markey. COVID-19 has made in-person campaigning difficult for these nine Democratic candidates and for their would-be constituents looking to make an informed choice. That's why we've invited all of the candidates to take part in a special three-part under-the-radar Congressional Candidate Forum. All nine agreed to be randomly divided into three groups of three. A note to listeners, we taped the three parts of the forum on Monday, August 10th. Three days later, Dave Cavell dropped out, throwing his support to candidate Jesse Murmel, but he remains on the ballot. In just a minute, you'll be hearing from our first group, candidates Becky Grossman, Isan Leckie, and Jesse Murmel. Later in the show, surging wine sales, cocktails to go, and comfort food galore. Just some of the emerging COVID-19 culinary trends. We talk with our food and wine experts about how the pandemic has changed the way we eat and drink. But first, joining me remotely for part one of our congressional forum, Becky Grossman, at-large member of the Newton City Council and former assistant district attorney for Middlesex County. Welcome, Becky. Nice to be with you, Callie. Also with me, Isan Leckie, former Wall Street regulator and the only woman of color in this race. Hello, Isan. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And Jesse Mermel, former Brookline Select Board member, advisor to Governor Deval Patrick, and senior leader at Planned Parenthood. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Hi, Callie. Great to be with you virtually. Oh, yes, exactly. So a little information, just a reminder to our listeners. The primaries are on September the 1st, just around the corner. Early voting begins on August 22nd. The mail-in ballot applications uh, have to be in the election office by August 26th, and then your ballots by September 1st. From now until voting day, we're broadcasting a new part of our forum each week. However, all three parts are available to listen online now. Whoever wins the Democratic primary will then face one of the two Republican candidates also running for the seat. These are Air Force veterans Julie Hall or David Rosa. So let's begin. Um, Becky, I'll start with you. America is battling several pandemics, the infection, the economy, and the battle for racial justice. With so many issues to tackle, which would you prioritize that directly address your fourth district constituents' concerns, but also address the current national global issues? Well, uh, certainly we need to address each of the topics that you just mentioned with urgency. Uh, so certainly in terms of the pandemic, you know, right away, 
focusing on the health and safety of our communities, as well as how we are going to uh, eventually be able to rebuild our economy and make sure that we bring relief to uh, our working families and small businesses until we can get to that point. I mean, right now we need another round of relief, undoubtedly. Uh, we need unemployment checks restored to the previous level because for so many, it is not safe to go back to work. Uh, we need a bailout for the childcare industry, which our economy and our working families depend on. And we need support for states and municipalities. Uh, as the chair of the finance committee in Newton, I have seen firsthand how our budgets in our cities and towns are really struggling in this time. And for Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans to be uh, acting as though it's okay to let local governments go bankrupt, uh, seeing that we're losing jobs and, and we're losing teachers and essential workers uh, is just absolutely unconscionable. And then in the longer term, we're going to need to put millions of people back to work. And uh, the federal government is going to need to step in to put resources behind an infrastructure program, which is something that I think could not only create the really high quality, uh, clean energy jobs that we know we need to combat the climate emergency, but uh, you know, simultaneously help to lift our economy and, and work towards our affordable housing and transit goals as well. Okay, thank you very much. Same question to you, Isan Lecky. Several pandemics with so many issues to tackle, which would you prioritize that directly address your fourth district constituents' concerns, but also address the current national and global issues? Thank you. Yes, this is a, obviously an emergency that we are through, and I do come from a background of dealing with economic emergencies as a Wall Street regulator we look to plan ahead for crises, for what could become of us um, uh, in America and across the globe if something that's worse than 2008 hits. So we knew at the time that we were operating in an economy that didn't have a strong foundation because the people in our, uh, in our country uh, didn't have uh, a living wage. They didn't have uh, jobs that, that secure uh, paid sick leave for them. They didn't have health care as a human right. They were struggling with housing. So that already created a vulnerability in our economy that if we get hit, let alone by COVID-19, which we've never accounted for, that we're, we're not going to be able to, to stay afloat unless the federal government and the Federal Reserve steps in to bail out the people. And that means giving $2,000 checks monthly to all individuals to make sure that they can keep food at, on the table and they can continue to um, get the basic necessities and basic spending, diapers for children, for example. And second, to make sure that we're not trying to force the reopening of the economy during a time that that results in the death of our people that instead we're actually keeping people home and we are keeping them alive. And so for me, I think about when I'm in Congress in January, and I hope that by then our government would have acted to contain the virus, to make sure that our hospitals are not failing, to make sure that our families are fed and safe, 
so that we can start to think about, come January, reopening our economy. Uh, the reopening of the economy will only happen if we contain COVID-19. And this is a global crisis that we're in, and we're seeing the effects um, on countries in Europe and, and on countries in, in Africa and in the Middle East um, and Asia. And our systems and our economies are very interrelated. So we have to not only act here at home, for example, when we think about the vaccines, as soon as we have a vaccine, that should be available at no charge across the world so that we can all contain this pandemic and move on to creating a green economy that rebuilds our infrastructure, rebuilds our public housing and public transportation and public schools, and shifts us uh, fossil fuels into renewables um, very quickly. So we can do this here and globally for sure. Thanks. Jesse Murmel. Callie, I think a congresswoman who prioritizes any one of those crises over another will be failing the 4th Congressional District. And I say that because they are intersectional, right? We are seeing uh, a, a worse outcome around health outcomes when it comes to COVID in black and brown communities because of 400 years of systemic racism in this country. We are seeing worse outcomes in our economy because we have a healthcare system that doesn't work for people and that folks can't afford to access or can't afford their prescription drugs. And if we aren't approaching what we are experiencing, these overlapping challenges that you've outlined so clearly, uh, in our country from an intersectional standpoint, we will be failing our constituents. And I wanna give you one specific example of a policy area that I think we must pursue that would frankly uh, begin to tackle all three of these areas and it's paid family and medical leave. When I was running the Alliance for Business Leadership, the progressive socially responsible business organization here in Massachusetts, I was asked to be one of the eight people to come to the table at the State House to negotiate what was ultimately passed is being implemented right now and will be the strongest paid family medical leave law in the country. And I know from that experience, spending seven months in the weeds of this issue, rolling up our sleeves and negotiating this nation leading compromise, the ways in which paid family and medical leave can improve health outcomes in this country, can tackle racial inequity, and can improve our economy. Imagine what our healthcare outcomes and economic outcomes would be like right now if a worker who wasn't feeling well or who had a family member who wasn't well could take time off without fear of financial ruin in order to get well themselves or to care for a loved one. We know that that will disproportionately benefit black and brown workers and their families. We also know that it will disproportionately impact women workers who we know often disproportionately bear the burden of childcare. We know that by preventing financial ruin for so many families, it will improve the economy. Uh, and of course, when people have access to healthcare, we get better health outcomes. So that's just one example of the type of intersectional thinking that I think the next member of Congress for this district must bring to Washington in order to be a true champion for all the people of the 4th Congressional District. Thanks. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm speaking with Becky Grossman, Isan Leckie, and Jesse Mermel, three of the nine Democratic candidates running for Congress to represent Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District, a district that includes parts of Bristol, Middlesex, Norfolk, Plymouth, and Worcester counties. Whoever wins the Democratic primary will then face one of the two Republican candidates also running for the seat, Air Force veterans Julie Hall or David Rosa. And Jesse, I'm going to start with you. 
That brings me to the next question. All nine of you fourth district candidates are from Newton, Brookline, or Wellesley. It's the northern and it's it's fair to say wealthier part of the fourth district, which also includes, as I've just said, the other towns, less wealthy towns like Fall River and Taunton. Um, None of you can win this race without big support from those cities. What issues specific to them do you pledge to address if elected? It's such an important question, and it won't surprise you to hear that it's one I get almost every day, and I'm sure my friends on this call will tell you the same thing. Uh, Listen, I feel so strongly about the the importance of the next congresswoman from this district, district representing the entire district, all 34 cities and towns. I launched my campaign in Fall River, have invested significant resources there, uh, including just this past weekend, hosting a virtual conversation with the fishing community on Saturday morning, talking about their concerns around mental health, around the economic future of their industry. I'm deeply committed to policies that are essential for the Southern part of this district. Of course, that includes a fair, just, and equitable recovery to COVID-19. That includes policies that lift up working families that frankly I've been involved in for over 20 years in my career, something no one else in this race can say, fighting for paid leave, raising the minimum wage, earned sick time, raising revenue equitably to invest in transportation and education and housing, um, and making sure that we make a Green New Deal happen. We have an incredible opportunity in the 4th Congressional District in particular to invest in responsible offshore wind, to create real jobs and career paths with signed project labor agreements that would tackle, quite frankly, the economic inequity that's been plaguing the South Coast of Massachusetts for years. It has the slowest rate of economic growth uh, of any other part of the state. And a Green New Deal, responsible offshore wind, uh, also the transmission lines and energy storage opportunities that will come with that will mean real economic growth as we tackle our climate crisis. And I think it is the focus that I've placed on the South Coast that is the reason that you're seeing the biggest organizations in that part of the district, the Coalition for Social Justice, SEIU, countless other labor unions. We have 21 labor unions behind us in this campaign, school committee members in Fall River, the president of the Taunton City Council, the state representative from Taunton, uh, and so many more line up behind this campaign. Uh, And I have to tell you, the fire I have in my belly for communities like Fall River and Taunton and Attleboro and the small towns in between uh, is rooted in my own experience growing up in a small town in rural Pennsylvania where the industries were different. We were farming and coal and paper, but the lived experience was the same. And as much as I think having the strongest, broadest, most diverse coalition in this race matters, as much as I think my deep policy background matters, I think it also matters that I have lived experience that mirrors everyone in this district, particularly the southern part of the fourth. And that's why I think you're seeing a coalition building around us, particularly in this home stretch. Okay, thank you. Isan Lecky, same question. Well, I think the communities that actually don't get attention in our district are communities of color in particular. Two days ago, I was down in Fall River, social distancing with the Bangladeshi community, um, members of small businesses. They all had families. And they told me people never, politicians never show up for them. They never talk with them about the issues that face them here and globally, especially as a Muslim community facing the Muslim ban um, and facing the Muslim slaughtering across the world. So look, when it comes to talking about racial justice, this is an issue that we have in every town. This is not a Fall River issue only. This is not a Brookline issue only. I live in Brookline. I'm not from uh, Brookline. I'm an immigrant. I came from Morocco. When I was 20 years old, I mopped the floors and earned poverty wages 
And I vowed that I will take down every system that takes away our opportunity of the American dream and of having the basic necessities to live. And I will build the America of our dreams. And building that America of our dreams, it starts right here in our districts where we have people who have the economic wealth, but they still feel that their children cannot even achieve the same grades in, in math. Right here in Brookline, as a member of the Parents Advisory Committee, I saw that data and I met with those families. That means that in our school systems, we have bias, we have systemic racism, and we have to address it head on. You know, it breaks my heart that when I see towns in our districts that have the economic resources, when you go to their public housing, you see mold and the majority of people living there are people of color. And that is unacceptable. And we can do something about it by voting for people who are not advocates for the corporations, who are not being uh, you know, endorsed by, by the pharmaceutical CEOs, people who are endorsed by people, people who have done the legwork to go deep in community and connect with those communities who have been jaded from our political system and who are willing to rebuild that trust relationship and we bring them back into the fold. That's the work that I've been doing uh, on this campaign and that's the work that I will continue to do throughout serving the 4th District. Thank you. Becky Grossman. So though I'm a Newton City Councilor, the job that I cherish most in my life is being a mom to my two young kids, Madeline, who's nine, and my son, Jack, who's six. And I look at all of the issues facing us in this district through the lens of what is going to protect the long-term best interest uh, for all of our kids and for families for, uh, for generations to come. Uh, there is no doubt that an incredible priority for the southern part of the district is lifting up the economic vitality and addressing the dramatic economic inequality from the north to the south part of this district. I made a commitment really early on in this race to have a member of my staff, if I'm so fortunate as to be elected, have a priority focus of economic development in the South Coast, in the Gateway Cities, and in those communities in our district that were struggling the most to come back from the 2008 recession and have been absolutely economically devastated by this pandemic. Uh, for me, that also means a real focus on small business development which I think is a model to work towards inclusive economic prosperity in making sure that small business uh, entrepreneurs who typically have had the hardest time getting access to capital, uh, specifically minorities, women, veterans, and the disabled uh, have access to those banking relationships. And we've already seen in the pandemic how uh, as the PPP program rolled out, uh, those small business owners were really left behind uh, because they're underbanked and don't have those relationships to draw upon with the same regularity. Uh, also, in terms of specific ways that we can establish the southern part of our district as a leader in a clean energy future. One example, in Brayton Point, a defunct coal-fired power plant that stands poised to be a hub of the offshore wind renewable energy industry. The only reason we can't get that off the ground is because the Trump administration is standing in the way of the final permitting. That is something that the next member of Congress for this district has got to continue to fight for, because if we can get that going, 
we can establish not just this district, but our Commonwealth as a leader in the clean energy economy that we know we need. Uh, and finally, I've also made a pledge, if I'm so fortunate as to be elected, to have office hours in my first term in each of the 34 cities and towns in this district. As a Newton City Councilor, I had office hours not just in my own ward or my own neighborhood, but in each of the eight wards in the city, because I thought it was really important to be out in the community, to be inviting face-to-face -face conversation. Uh, and that is uh, the same thing that I am going to do as a member of Congress. All right, uh, moving on to the next question. And let me frame it this way. Uh, just a couple of months ago, a poll of the district said that most of the residents were undecided. With that in mind, everybody in this race is heavily credentialed. Stellar academic backgrounds, solid records of service, community or military, impressive leadership roles. What about you, then, as uniquely qualified to represent this district in a way the other candidates aren't? Isan Lecky. You know, this district needs a congresswoman who comes with the lived experiences of the people who have been sidelined by our political system and the know-how of how to get things done in Washington. And I bring those worlds together. I bring a unity and solidarity across the district. This is a very gerrymandered district where we have some of the richest towns in the, in the country grouped with some of the poorest towns in the Commonwealth. And it takes somebody who has been through the grind of being sidelined as an immigrant who came here as a 20-year-old with nothing, who worked poverty wages, put myself through a community college, earned a women in math scholarship to go to Boston University, and worked jobs that were in the center of serving communities who have been hungry, um, as somebody who works in, in a food bank fighting uh, food deserts, who have working for communities who have lost revenue during the 2008 financial crisis, as somebody who works in public finance and saved uh, the city of Harrisburg from bankruptcy, and somebody who worked at the Federal Reserve working on saving our economy from another wreck understanding our system, the complexities between our economy and the world economy, and bringing all of that knowledge and all of that fearless uh, guts into fighting Trump, uh, fighting his minions, and fighting for the working families, for the little guy in this district. And look, there's also a very important aspect to talk about. Representation matters. Being a woman of color matters because I've been in the spaces and I've been subject to discrimination. And I understand that the policies that we bring are only there to help us keep breathing while we go into generational resolution of the systemic racism that we have in our country. It's going to take time and it's going to take a commitment and, and people who have intersectionality in their own lives. You know, I am a Muslim person married to half Jewish, half Irish Muslim person, uh, and we bring the interfaith and the solidarity in our family. And we grow our little girl knowing about the Holocaust, knowing about what's happening with the Muslim community in Kashmir, knowing about the solidarity that we can bring in our communities right now so that we can tap into people's individual and collective power 
to have the America that we dream of. Thank you. Becky Grossman. I'm running for Congress with the fierce urgency of a mom fed up by what is going on in this country and determined to make change. Uh, I wake up every day thinking about what our planet is going to look like when my kids and all our kids reach adulthood and, and perhaps choose to have families of their own. Uh, you know, right now, out of 435 members of Congress, we only have 25 who are mothers of school-aged children. I believe that if we had 100 or 200 moms of young kids in Congress, it would change the conversation in Washington completely. Imagine what we could accomplish on uh, universal pre-K and affordable and accessible childcare. Imagine what we could do in ensuring that every American has access to quality, affordable health care. Imagine how we could get serious about tackling the climate emergency and making sure that the generations to come have a planet to live on that isn't in peril. Uh, that is the urgency and passion that I am going to bring to this role. Um, you know, I've had some people say, you know, being a mom, what are your, what are your other qualifications? And uh, what I've said is I'm a mom with the chops to back it up. I'm incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunity to graduate with an economics degree from Cornell University, uh, to attend and graduate from Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School, and now working as a Newton City Counselor, having been uh, asked to serve as the chair of our finance committee after just a single term on the council. Uh, and I think that that combination of experience and passion and urgency uh, that I bring as uh, as a mom is um, is what I have to offer the district. Okay, Jesse Mermel. You know, Callie, people are out of work, and small businesses are struggling, and people are worried about their own health and the health of the people that we love. And I think what really matters is who can translate the fantastic resumes that you just talked about in a really talented field into benefits for voters for voters' families, for voters' communities. And I would argue that I'm the candidate in this race with the experience, with the values, and with the commitment to get that done. Resumes are fantastic. Results are a totally different story. And as the kids like to say, I have the receipts. You know, I stand out as the candidate in this race who has negotiated the strongest paid family and medical leave law in the country with a team of seven other fantastic people who has been on the ground pounding the pavement in Congress when I ran external affairs at Planned Parenthood to fight for contraceptive coverage to be included in the ACA, who's worked directly for two health services providers, Planned Parenthood and running the Mass Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, who knows firsthand exactly why we need to fight for affordable and accessible health care. To me, that means Medicare for all. We are so, so blessed to have an incredibly talented field in this race. But I believe I stand out as the uniquely qualified candidate to deliver the results that we need in this incredibly challenging time, not just for our district, for the whole country. And I would point out that I think these differences in a, a field where we're trying to represent one of the deepest blue districts in the country really matter when we have another candidate in this race who has spent his career, quite frankly, working against the values that I've been working on and that some other candidates in this race have been working on too. You know, a candidate in this race uh, who is opposed raising the minimum wage, who's funded by big pharma and a family funded 
super PAC, who I think uh, has said some incredibly disturbing things when it comes to burning the Quran or the Confederate flag. I think it's really important to clearly articulate that I'm a candidate with very different values, with very different experience, a different track record, and have delivered very different results. And I hope for voters that makes me stand out on September 1st. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is part one of our Congressional Forum. Here with me remotely today are our candidates, Becky Grossman, Isan Leckie, and Jesse Mermel. Let me now ask some criticisms of each of you, and you have a moment to respond to them. So, Becky Grossman, um, we're in a moment of racial reckoning. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about police reform. And many people are unhappy that as a member of the Newton City Council, you voted against a proposal uh, to pare down the budget of the Newton Police Department. You have made it clear that you're for limited police immunity, which is you know important for a number of people. But why did you oppose that measure? Well, I really appreciate that question. I believe that we need to reform our police department in Newton and in every city and town throughout this country. And as a Newton city councilor, I took that work on. I actually voted twice to reduce our police department's budget. And I voted to create a civilian review board to really look at how we're policing line by line, how we're spending our resources on public safety in Newton and reimagining a public safety system that makes all members of our community actually safe and feel safe. So why did you oppose that that petition? Right, so that specific vote that you're speaking of was one of a series of a lot of votes. Uh, that particular vote was a uh, an arbitrary number that if cut would have actually possibly had the effect in the long term of increasing our police budget because of our overtime obligations. That vote uh, did not speak to doing the actual hard work of reimagining our police department and designing the budget for the future that we need to make sure that we are tackling systemic racism uh, in our community and we are doing the work of police reform. Uh, the other votes where I did cut twice, each vote for uh, $200,000, so a total of $400,000 that I did vote to cut. Uh, the first vote made sure that our police budget this year was lower than our previous police budget. Um, the second vote would have given this task force more teeth in putting dollars behind it. Okay. Uh, that particular vote didn't, didn't pass, but, uh, but it was something that I felt strongly about. Uh, and in addition to the other reforms that you mentioned, uh, ending qualified immunity, demilitarizing the police, banning uh, chokeholds, uh, and the civilian review board that we did form, uh, you know, I voted to put quite uh, quite significant resources behind that, uh, and and the votes are in line with doing the hard work of of real change. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Isan Lecky, now you've described yourself as a democratic socialist, but there are some interesting, from the outset, apparent contradictions, it's, it feels like. So you put a lot of your own money into your campaign. I don't think anybody thinks anything's wrong with that. But some have criticized uh, uh, the money that you put into the campaign as some of there are stocks that are fossil fuel, and you are a big proponent um, of clean energy. So would you explain the contradictions uh, so that uh, voters understand where you're coming from? Sure. I think you know that your campaign is successful uh, when you start to get trolled. 
and and lied about. You know, my husband and I don't have any earnings or money in fossil fuels. We don't have any stocks in fossil fuels. We've been very particular about making sure that our money is, uh, we call it kosher and halal money in our interfaith family. So we make sure that we stand up to our values. My husband and I both met very, very poor. Uh, as I say, that I was mopping the floors in the restaurants, earning poverty wages, and, and he was uh, lifting boxes at the corner pharmacy. You know, we, we built our lives uh, very carefully and very slowly and with a lot of patience. And up until the last four four or five years of our life, uh, in the 14-year marriage, we, we wouldn't have afforded to be able to do this work. And the shame in, in our country is that you have to have either the connections uh, of, to the wealthy pockets or take corporate money uh, in order to run. When you run on small dollar, which we have tried for a very long time until COVID hit, you, you see what happens uh, is that people who were given to our campaign lost their jobs and lost their health insurance. At the same time, when we're fighting for Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and getting corporate money out of politics, so it became a moral imperative to look at what can we do to save the people of this district from the corporate pack and lobbyist money uh, and, and the wealthiest money that's, that's buying their voices. Um, and that was a moral obligation for me to make that decision and take money out of our life savings and fund the people. I don't call that personal funding because it, this is not for me. This is for us. And I would, I am full in. I would go uh, miles and miles to fight for the most vulnerable. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, Jesse Mermel, you've been very clear about your position about systemic racism, but a number of people are very unhappy that you voted against a petition from an African American firefighter's claim of discrimination. Why shouldn't that be a deal breaker for constituents who say social justice is a priority? You know, I'm, I'm really proud of my 20-year record on the front lines fighting for social and racial justice. And a decade ago, when I was on the select board, having been advised by town council, the board unanimously voted to punish a firefighter who used a racial slur. And it's because of my commitment to racial justice that I've clearly acknowledged the inadequacy of that punishment well before I was a candidate for office, well before, frankly, we even knew there would be a vacancy for this seat. I apologized to Gerald Alston, the firefighter to whom the racial slur was uh, uh, directed, and I've used my platform to advocate for the town to bring the case to a speedy resolution and one that centers justice, speaking before town meeting, calling for town meeting to apologize, speaking just in the past probably six or eight weeks uh, before the select board, calling on the board again to bring the case to a speedy resolution and one that centers justice. And I've stacked my record on racial, social, and economic justice against anyone's in this race, from working at Planned Parenthood to ensure that our immigrant community has access to comprehensive reproductive health care, to serving on the steering committee of Raise Up Massachusetts, fighting for the policies that we know lift up black and brown families like paid leave and a $15 minimum wage and equal pay, fighting for equitable investments in transportation and housing and education. And it's why I've been endorsed by such a strong coalition of progressive organizations and leaders. I, I really believe that I'm the proven progressive in this race who's been on the front lines 
doing this work. And it's because of that commitment that I've been so clear in speaking out about the vote that you're talking about. All right. I want to thank all of you uh, for joining me today. A reminder to our listeners that the primaries are on September 1st, just around the corner. Early voting begins on um, August the 22nd. Mail-in ballot applications must be in the election office by August the 26th. Ballots in by September 1st. Whoever wins the Democratic primary will face one of two Republican candidates also running for the seat, Air Force veterans Julie Hall or David Rosa. But right now, I want to thank my first group of three in the 4th District Congressional Forum here at Under the Radar. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Becky Grossman is an at-large member of the Newton City Council and former assistant district attorney for Middlesex County. Isan Lecky is a former Wall Street regulator and the only woman of color in the Massachusetts 4th Congressional District race. Jesse Mermel is a former Brookline Select Board member, advisor to Governor Deval Patrick, and senior leader at Planned Parenthood. Part two of our three-part congressional forum airs on next week's show, but you can listen to the entire three-part 4th District Congressional Forum right now on WGBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Coming up, Black Lives Matter, and that includes black winemakers and restaurant owners. Our food and wine gurus discuss the rising popularity in African-American-owned wine brands and salute Boston's first black restaurant month. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we called Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Boston's first ever Black Restaurant Month with local Black restaurant owners who are hungry for change to make the industry more equitable. Plus, the pandemic can't stop us from popping corks. We've been buying wine at a booming rate during COVID-19. And while the pandemic forced shut-in provided home cooks more time to develop their artisanal skills, think sourdough bread, kombucha, and smoked meats, Refined restaurants are giving their go-to menus a homespun feel, swapping out the caviar for family chicken dinners. Our food and wine experts weigh in on how the pandemic is changing our palate. Joining me remotely, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Welcome back, Jonathan. Thank you, Kelly. And Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hi, Amy. Hi. Well, I'm glad to have you both. We have so much to talk about. Let's jump right in. Um, I'm going to start with you, Amy, because uh, Nia Grace, who's the owner-operator of Daryl's Corner Bar and Kitchen in the South End, um, has organized a very small group of uh, Black restaurateurs in Boston and put together something called Black Restaurant Month, which is this month. And it's the first of its kind in August. She's hoping that it can be, you know, something different to support Black restaurants, but also in this time of COVID-19, just give a boost to restaurants in general, which, as you know, that's a part of a bigger story, which I want you to comment on both of these, that the restaurant industry itself is going through some changes and trying to figure out ways to sustain itself. So what do you think? Well, yeah, I think bringing more awareness to how we are supporting particularly Black-owned restaurants in Boston, which 
Um, you know, there are some that are, are getting press, um, but it's never enough and it hasn't been equitable. I think this is such a great effort. And this is this is a circumstance where your power as a consumer is really meaningful because so much of what gives us joy, I think, where we live, especially in cities, is the small businesses that surround us. Um, so I'm all for all of this. I want I want to like shine whatever light I have in these directions. Oh, I think you're you're right about the power of the consumer. I want to make a note that eight out of over a thousand liquor licenses are black owned in Boston. So that gives you some sense of of what Nia Grace, who is the owner and operator of Daryl's Corner Bar and Kitchen in the South End, is trying to do to sort of spread the love around, as you as you've said. Just a, an, another minute on the on the future of restaurants. There there are groups of uh, restaurateurs of some note, uh, the Tom Colicchios, the Danny Myers, the people follow. Uh, celebrity chefs, and they do, uh, David Chang of Mamafuko, who are really trying to, uh, to get people to support, as you say, use our power as consumers. And they so they have something called Safe and Just Reopening Plan for Restaurants, and they hope that this will bring people back um, to use restaurants, whether it's takeout or coming in uh, to sit outside or even going inside now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the effort is, is certainly multi-pronged. You know, one part is to have a lot of transparency around the measures that restaurants are taking so that people can feel safe uh, going back to restaurants. You know, even before COVID, the restaurant industry was not a sustainable industry for the people who work there. I mean, it is a brutal, really difficult, very low profit margin. Um, You're barely hanging on and you're getting all this great press and you're still barely hanging on in the best case circumstance. It's a it's a really difficult time, but it's also an opportunity to look at these business models and to say, how can we be doing this differently? I mean, we we ha- we kind of have to reinvent the industry anyway. Mm-hmm. How do we redistribute the money? How do we share tips equitably? They're they're doing a lot of high level thinking that I think until now every restaurateur has been way too busy just getting through the week, getting payroll. They just didn't have the luxury of stepping back and thinking of new ways of doing things. So if there's a silver lining, that's it. Okay. And uh, over in the in the wine business, um, a couple things happening um, as we're talking about, you know, looking around for opportunities and making things more equitable. I was uh, surprised uh, to learn about this new program that is sponsored by the Urban Grape. That's a local uh, wine store uh, in the South End, as it turns out as well. It's called the Urban Grape Wine Studies Program for Students of Color, which will be coming out of uh, BU. So, Jonathan, were you aware of this? Well, yes. So the Urban Grape is this great um, uh, wine shop in the South End. It's owned by uh, Hadley Douglas and her husband, T.J. Douglas. Um, And um, tragically, uh, during some of the looting earlier in the spring, uh, they were a target of that. Mm -hmm. And um, out of of this um, negative experience has come this desire to create to do something positive and create this uh, wine studies program. Um, and, and as TJ likes to say, and also to make sure I'm not the only black person in the room. Yes. <laughs> it's a great program. It's a combination of BU's um, certificate. They do a certificate program in wine. It's a combination of that on the education side. And then um, paid internships, you know, with the Urban Grape, a retailer with MS Walker, you know, a giant um, um, importer and distributor, and then Big Heart Hospitality for to, to get a feel for the hospitality. And so it's a great choice that they made to have something positive for the future 
um, come out of what's happening right now. Yeah. And it goes perfectly with the fact that Netflix must be very happy because Netflix has been airing a movie called Uncorked. Um, and I'm going to play a clip of it. It's about a young man leaving his family barbecue business to become a master sommelier. And he's black and he wants to get into this business where there are very few folks, as TJ has said. Um, so here's a little clip. What happened to you yesterday afternoon? Just got my schedules mixed up. I thought you said you weren't going to let this wine thing mess with your work. Okay, so I want to become a master sommelier. My whole life I've been told what my future was going to look like. If you don't take over the stand, who's going to carry it on when I'm gone? you got to give him a chance to figure it out. But I just want to find my own thing. Okay, so uh, it's it's really a family uh the story, but I mean, it's centered around an area where there are not a lot of African Americans. So I, it's you know, it's timely. <laughs> you know, and, and Callie, I I know I know uh, why you love this movie and why you want to talk <laughs> about this movie. This movie is set in Memphis. Uh, well, there you go. This movie is where, set where real at, barbecue is made. <laughs> well, and, and, and you didn't have to. You didn't have to watch any horrible barbecue. You were able to watch all Memphis barbecue. So I know that was palatable to you. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and it was just a great. I mean, it's just a great, um, great conjunction of this. You know, the the, the race and class issues around barbecue versus wine, and you know the the relentless whiteness of the wine world. I mean, it's barely, it's, it's so obvious and it's such a complete part of the narrative. The future sommelier, Elijah, you know, it's something that he encounters in just immediately as he enters this world. Yeah. Um, but a great, great, great movie. And, um, and it has a good point. So we're, we're all of a piece here. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Boston Wine School's Jonathan Alsop and Yankee Magazine's Amy Traverso. We're discussing how culinary trends and industries are changing amid the pandemic, or we're about to. So in both of your areas, uh, there's a lot going on. So Amy, people are just home, cooking, home, cooking, home, cooking. We've known that now for a couple of months, but now it's impacted what's happening in restaurants. Tell us all about it. So what we're seeing right now in Boston is there are a number of fine dining restaurants that have uh, embraced a takeout uh, that never would have before. So you have uh, Craigie on Main, which is a James Spirit Award winning fine dining place. What they have to do is, is make food that people want to take home with them, that travels well, that works in a context where you're taking out of a container and putting on a plate at home. So their menu has, you know, is looking a little more like the best version of home cooking. So there's Tony's spaghetti and meat sauce. Well, it has ramen noodles and a miso beef curry and cherry tomatoes, but it feels it's, it's echoing something that you would make at home. It's just kind of a super awesome version of it. They're doing their Craigie burger um, for takeout. Everything is, is at a high level, but it looks, and sounds more like home food. Um, Bisque in uh, Somerville, a fantastic restaurant. They're doing fried chicken dinners at a very reasonable price. Um, and Fox and the Knife uh, in South Boston, you know, Karen Akunowitz is amazing. They're doing, you know, pasta, homemade pasta that you can take home and cook. So everyone is just adapting and innovating the heck out of everything. Even Uni, you know, they're doing sushi that you can take home and it's of a totally amazing quality. And there's certainly other items on the takeout menu that uh, feel modern and and cool and inventive, but it also you know there's Brussels sprouts and there's tuna nigiri. They might have real, uh, slightly more interesting concepts than the sushi place down the street, 
But again, it's like, how do we make this food make sense for you to buy and take home? Yeah. And Jonathan, we are drinking some wine during this time. <laughs> wine has gotten a lot of love. So, so the good news is that in the retail sector, wine sales are just explosive. I mean, you know, my friends in the retail wine business are saying that, you know, it's like Christmas. It's like the holidays. It's that hmm. busy. Um, the bad news is that on the flip side, in the restaurant world, the wine business has essentially vaporized. So in a, on, a, on, a, on the retail side, a couple of interesting things are happening. This according to the American Association of Wine Economists. You know, back in the spring, you had a 20, 22% increase in volume of wine sales, but you had a 32% increase in value. So not only were people buying more wine um, in the face of this pandemic, they were buying um, more expensive wine. Hmm. Which makes sense. If you're feeling like you're at home, I'm going to treat myself. That's one of the positive things that has come out of this. Um, I know, Callie, you wanted to talk about this, the world of alcohol to go. Yeah. Before I get there, though, I really want to talk about uh, Bumble and Babe Wine, which I think is quite clever. <laughs> uh, so this is Babe Wine is a brand of sparkling canned wine owned by AB InBev. And they're just trying to get make themselves, you know, out front because so many people are drinking wine more yeah. in this moment. So they yeah. came up with this kind of kitschy thing where they've uh, partnered with Bumble, which is a social media campaign, uh, to help people who are stuck living with an ex during the coronavirus pandemic. They're going to help them move. <laughs> they will they will cover your moving costs for a pandemic breakups. On the side of the moving truck, it says, your ex is canceled. Babe and Bumble are here to help you move on. Literally. Of course, there's wine involved. <laughs> so I just thought that was cute. This, this, <laughs> you know. this, is, this, this is great marketing. <laughs> yes, and, it is. Um, and I believe there's probably a gigantic market out there uh, for this service as well. Yes. Yes. So back to the uh, pouches of to-go with uh, the uh, wine to-go, the drinks, the mixed drinks to-go that Governor Charlie Baker signed a bill allowing restaurants to do. You wanted to comment on that, uh, Jonathan. Well, well, this is a profound and utter change in form for how wine and spirits and drinks um, get sold to the public. I mean, yeah. you know, a month ago, this was an arrestable offense. You know, <laughs> a month later, it's how we're going to be doing business in the future. Um, and again, the same, you know, the same challenges face the uh, spirits business has faced the food business. You know what? You know what is uh, what kind? What kind of cocktail does travel well? What kind of cocktail is going to be appealing? Um, you know the experience you have when you're at a bar and the bartender puts the drink down in front of you and you and you and you just have this like little breathtaking moment. Like how do you recreate that in a in a to go format? And I don't. I don't know that anyone knows the answer. I don't know that anyone knows the answer to this yet. That people are people are working on it, and this is um, this is some of the creativity that we're going to be experiencing um, as we go forward in the food business. Well, I've already experienced some of that from Summer Shack. I but even before they were doing the total across the board uh, takeout orders, and this involves this is a story that involves you, uh, Amy, as well, because so you can't get the liquor to go unless you have food. So you have to order right. food. And by the way, that's in the re if you're at the restaurant, it's the same thing. I'd learned that from a outside patio experience. Um, but 
if you order this to go, you have to order food. So, you know, you need to be. I did that with Summer Shack and their cocktails to go. Let me just say, delicious. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I can say. <laughs> well, one of, one of the things that New York did is they allowed restaurants to sell off some of their stock, just like a retail, yeah. um, just, like, just in a retail format. And that was something that helped a lot of restaurants well, helped, helped a lot of restaurants for a little while. Yeah, I think that's a, yes, people can just, you know, look down the list, order something, and then order a bottle to go as well. But I think the cocktails are better, um, which reminds me, Amy, so you've been looking at a whole trend of savory fruit salads. I'm wondering, what cocktail would go with that? Oh, cocktails <laughs> with savory. So, yeah, so restaurants around, I, one one trend I'm loving for summer food is kind of the update to the t- circa 2010 watermelon and feta salad, which we've all had and yes. made. And it's great, but, you know, we need some new ideas here, folks. Um, and what really is, is inspiring me right now, Tiger Mama is doing, I love this one, it's called the New Girlfriend Fruit Salad, <laughs> mm. um, which uh, I think speaks to better days ahead. Um, melon, papaya, mango, Thai chili, herbs, mm. you know, spice and herbs. Um, you know, a little bit, uh, maybe of an inspiration also from, uh, you know, you see a similar profile as sort of spicy and, um, and melon and watermelon in, you know, a lot of sort of Mexican street food. Um, so I'm loving that. I'm loving the tomato nectarine salad at Bar Mitzana, um, and the watermelon duca salad with black lime salt and radish at Sofra. So, I'd love this, you know, it's, it's food that feels good, especially when the weather is warm. Um, mm. But there's, there's an idea there. There's something new. It's fun. Um, and for cocktails, Jonathan, I'm going to, what, what do you think? I'm, there's so many fruity cocktails that, you know, I would think well, something I'm, cooling, with like a cucumbery kind of profile. Ooh, or a basil something. Cucumbery, basil. Um, I made, I made kind of a, I guess it was sort of a, a Manhattan um, with watermelon juice the other day. Um, yeah. I yeah, pressed yeah, out, u- used that as the base. And I think I also used, I think I also used basil or some lemon thyme in, in that. Um, so yeah, something really with this fruit salad, you know, same thing with the wine. You'd want a really fruity, really juicy wine to really go along with that. And I think it's the same thing with the cocktail. I did a watermelon rosé, frosé thing, mm. which would I have to I say love was, that. was quite delicious. Mm-hmm. And, um, you freeze the watermelon and then you know. blend it. Oh, so good. And now it's occurring to me that when I ordered from Daryl's Corner Bar and Kitchen, I did not order a cocktail. So I'm going to have to circle back. <laughs> and, and at every restaurant, I'm trying to do my part to support as much as I can because, you know, some people can't do this. And, you know, we all unless your Bezos can't do it every day, but we can try because I'd like to see all those people get back to work. Yeah, get back to work and stop making sourdough bread. <laughs> yeah. Oh, speaking of that. Who knew the world was waiting <laughs> for a gigantic excuse to make sourdough bread? Pause right there. I want to play a clip of something. Here's a clip from one of the many how to make sourdough videos. And today I wanted to cover something very important because I've been seeing so many people making bread, just cooking in general. If there's one good thing about the coronavirus, it's more people have time to cook or more people are home and they can dedicate time to making food from scratch. And there's no food you can make more from scratch than bread. You're taking yeast, flour, and water, and salt, and you're making magic with those ingredients. 
everybody's making sourdough, Jonathan, in answer to your question, Incredible. except me. <laughs> I'm not doing it. And it's, I'm obsessed. I have, I finally fell. I was kind of resisting it. And I am a hundred percent. Like I just came back from a week in Maine and one of the best moments of coming home was getting my hands on my sourdough starter <laughs> and become that person. It's like, I've missed you. <laughs> well, if I may tell the truth on Hannah, our producer on this show, she's got a sourdough starter and she's been whipping up the bread <laughs> for oh, the last it's so few good. months. Well, it, becomes a, becomes a, it becomes a member of the family. I guess. I don't like, as it turns out, I, I know this is heresy. I don't like sourdough. Okay, well, you can control the sourness. I make a very nutty sourdough bread um, with some rye in there, so it's very moist, and it's so good. And it's really, honestly, when it comes out of the oven, there is no better bread in the world than your bread. We know what you're eating these days, Amy, that sourdough. Jonathan, (laughs) Jonathan, I have 30 seconds for you to tell me what you're drinking. Um, So what I'm drinking these days is a super light red wine from Italy. And the grape is called, um, and we'll we'll put this up on the uh, Facebook page too. Um, The Mm -hmm. grape is called Galeopo. And it comes from way southern Italy in Calabria, the, the toe of the Italian boot. And um, when you look at it, you wonder if it's a really dark rosé or a really light red wine. And it turns out it's a really light red wine. Perfect for summer. You can put it in the refrigerator. You can chill it down a little bit. It's, um, it can be a challenge for red wine lovers to find the right red wine when it's this hot. But uh, yes. this is it. Galeopo. Light. All right. So... Thank you both for joining me. Great to talk to you. This is a great conversation, and um, I miss you. I miss you all in the studio, but we shall we shall be t- connected at some point. Yes, miss you too. Thanks. Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lovers Devotional. Amy Traverso is the food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of the Apple Lovers Cookbook. That's it for this week's show. Find us on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubilee and engineered by Dave Goodman. Rebecca Tauber is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.